that your kingdom would grow. It is in your son's precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you remain standing for the reading of the word, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, starting in verse 10 this morning. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in, Jerusalem, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. sure that all of you are in fear right now because we're supposed to cover that whole section in one sermon. That's a little bit bigger than what we're used to, but uh, we're going we're gonna to give it a try. In fact, I'm going to have to talk a little bit faster. Um, and we'll probably be skipping along. We probably won't be going as deep in some of these areas that we would like to, but hopefully it will be food for our souls this morning. Last week, we began to look at this passage concerning the woman at the well. We, we noted last week the connection between Nicodemus and this woman, the fact that Nicodemus came at night and this woman came to Jesus at noon. And there is spiritual significance for that. Nicodemus was still in the dark and this woman will soon be enlightened. She will soon find faith in Christ. And there are other similarities too that we could point out. Like when Jesus makes a statement to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again, and he totally misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. How can I be born again? How can I enter my mother's womb? And when he speaks to the woman at the well, he says that um, he talks to her about living water, and she misunderstands what living water is. And so there's some parallels between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. 
She, as we saw last week, uh, Jesus asked her to give him a drink, and she is taken back by that because a Jew would never speak to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman, out in the open. And so he calls, she calls him on it. How can you, a Jew, ask me? How, how can you do that? How can you not be unclean by asking me for a drink? But in verse 10, Jesus turns that around on her. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus saying, I ask you, but if you knew who I was, if you knew what the gift of God was, you would be asking me. And so before we get to the idea of living water and what that means, we need to pay close attention to what Jesus said to her. There are two things here that I think is important, not just for this woman, but for everyone who desires to be saved or needs to be saved. They need to understand a couple of things. One is they need to understand what the gift of God is, and they need to understand who Jesus is, the gift of God and Jesus. So what is the gift of God? Well, quite simply, we can say it in many different terms, but simply the gift of God is Jesus to humanity. He was sent to be the Savior of the world. And his particular gift that he brings in his person and through him, he is the Savior, so he has come to bring salvation. So the gift of God is salvation to the world through Jesus Christ. That's the gift of God. And so this woman needed to know that Jesus himself was the gift of God and salvation was being offered to her through him. And then he says, and you need to know who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You need to know what the gift of God and who it is. It's kind of one and the same, really. But if she only knew who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah sent from God to give eternal life to whoever would believe in him, she would be asking him for this living water. So what is what is living water? What is this living water? The, the, the woman likely misunderstood him because in that culture, and in some other cultures even today, living water means running water. It usually means water that's running down a stream. It's living, it's alive, it's moving, as opposed to water that is still like down in a well. And so when Jesus said, I would give you living water, she is wondering where the stream is. Where's this moving water that you're talking about? She didn't have any clue what Jesus was saying. But again, Jesus was not talking about physical water here. He was talking about spiritual water. The Old Testament is our guide. Jesus was using the language of the Old Testament, and any Jew who understood the Old Testament would, would, could probably make the connection to what Jesus was saying. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken God. He is the fountain of life. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. In other words, they were going after other gods. They were chasing after other things. They were moving away from the God who, who 
who is the fountain of life, the fountain of living waters. Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we seek light. Isaiah 44, 3 says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants. In that parallel, you get to understand what he's talking about by water, pouring out his water. The parallel is, I will pour out my spirit. We've seen this before at the baptism of John and, and uh, being born again and water and spirit, that what this is pointing to is the Holy Spirit. He is the fountain of life. And that's what living waters is in reference to, the Spirit of God that gives life. We see this in Revelation 22, 1, later on. Then the angel showed me the rivers of, of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb of God, the water of life flowing from God's throne. So this is not physical water to satisfy our physical thirst. This is spiritual water that will satisfy eternally our souls. In other words, Jesus is offering to provide the only remedy that ails the human soul. What ails the human heart is often put, put in terms of thirst, metaphorically speaking. Isaiah 55, 1 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts. And he's not talking about thirsting physically for physical water. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So what is this thirst? Well, it's like a man thirsting after water in a desert. It's a deep longing for something that we don't have. It's a longing that can't be satisfied by anything in this world. We've all tried to fill this void. Pascal talks about it as a vacuum or a void. It's a God-shaped void or vacuum that only God himself could, could fill. And we've all tried to fill that void that only God can fill with things. We've tried to fill it with material things. We buy one thing after another after another, thinking those things will satisfy, but as soon as you buy it, it doesn't satisfy anymore, and you're off to uh, another thing. So we buy things, and we buy, we, we think that these material kinds of things will satisfy us, but a spiritual problem can't be solved with a, a material solution. Or like the woman at the well, we've tried to fill that void with relationships. That people go from one relationship to another relationship because they're trying to fill some void. They're looking in someone else that only God could fill that void. Some even look for it not just in marriage relationships, but in the relationships with their children or with other people. They're trying to get other people to fill a void and give them meaning and purpose in life. But only God can do that. That's why we thirst. A spiritual thirst cannot be quenched by anything in this world. That's why C.S. Lewis said this is a good indicator that if we can't be satisfied anything in, in, with anything in this world, we're not made for this world, we're made for another. Augustine wrote in the first pages of his confession, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
That's what our thirst is. That's the source of our thirst. In other words, God made us for himself, and we can only find true satisfaction for our soul in him. A.W. Pink wrote this, Whether he articulates it or not, the natural man the world over is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors and plaudits of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure, the turning from one form of it to another with persistent and unwearied diligence? Why this eager search for wisdom, this scientific inquiry, this pursuit of philosophy, this ransacking of the writings of the ancients, and this ceaseless experimentation by the moderns? Why the insane craze for that which is novel? Why? Because there is an aching void in the soul. Because there is something remaining in every natural man that is unsatisfied. This is true of the millionaire equally as much as the pauper. The riches of the former bring no real contentment. It is true of the the globetrotter equally as much as the country rustic who has never been outside the bounds of his native country. Traveling from one end of the earth to the other and back again fails to discover the secret of peace over all the cisterns of this world's providing is world's providing is written in letters in a faceable truth whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again it's like malcolm muggeridge that famous journalist and writer who became a christian later in his life he was wealthy he had fame and after all of his awards, all of his accolades, after all the things he wrote, even if those things seemed to impact and change the world around him, he said this. Yet, he said, I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing. Less than nothing. A positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. What Christ is offering to this nameless woman is not physical water for her physical thirst, but spiritual water that will satisfy her thirst forever. Yet she was still not understanding the spiritual nature of this conversation. She was thinking, still thinking in terms of physical water. So look at me in verse 11, and, uh, with, with me at verse 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, she looked at Jesus and noticed that Jesus wasn't carrying what most travels carried was a, 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 a kind of a bucket made of leather or the skins of an animal. Most travelers just carried that with them, and when they come to a well, they can fill the bucket or a stream, they can fill it. But most likely, the disciples had that when they went into town. So Jesus didn't have anything to draw water from. She noticed that. So how are you going to give me water? You don't have anything to draw from this well. Notice she called him Kyrios. He called him, Kyrios can be translated Lord. Sometimes it's more of an address like Sir. So your 
translations probably uh, say sir here sir you don't have anything to draw water from there's no streams running nearby that's kind of a, there's nothing by here there's no living water streams that run by. that's why jacob dug this well if there were streams nearby jacob wouldn't have spent the effort and and some scholars even say uh, that that well it was over a hundred foot deep can you imagine digging a well by hand over a hundred feet that well was a very deep well, and the reason why they went through so much trouble to dig that well is because there was no streams. So she's saying, where are you going to get this water? Are you better than Jacob? Can you, do you see this land better than Jacob does? And then in verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now he's beginning to help her understand that he's not talking about physical water. This physical water, you're going to have to keep coming back for this. But I'm going to give you something that springs up in your heart, in your life. It's like a well, a ceaseless well that will spring up to eternal life. That's what he's offering her, eternal life. And we're reading this, this is written down for a reason. Why? Because Jesus is offering us eternal life, too. He's offering the world eternal life. He's still offering living water to thirsty souls all across the world. So, clearly, Jesus is speaking spiritually, metaphorically. And the world can only give water that will never satisfy, but the water that springs up uh, will give eternal life, the water that Jesus gives. Notice there is a condition there. He says, whoever drinks, whoever drinks, that's, a, that's conditional. That means that the living water is not going to be given to everybody. But it's given to the person who drinks it, whoever drinks this. This is speaking in terms of having a simple faith. Drinking here means believing. This should remind us of John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life so this is a parallel drinking and believing are the same thing so whoever believes whoever drinks will have eternal life so this is water this eternal life cannot be earned it cannot be worked for it must be received as a gift it is the gift of god and so jesus is speaking here of an inner change that must occur within the lives of people who receive this living water. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is in reference to the new birth, what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about. This new birth, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So the water, again, is the Holy Spirit. That When we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, and we are born again. And the Holy Spirit begins to well up in us, bring great change in our life, like a spring welling up inside of us that brings eternal life. And this welling up inside of us brings us faith, godliness, joy, and it will continue without end. In fact, Psalm 1611, describing heaven, you, you know, have you ever talked to somebody that said, boy, if we go to heaven, it must be a really boring thing if it's like, you know, a eternal church worship service or something like that, you know? They have no clue what they're talking about. 
This is, this is in Psalm 1611. It says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. Heaven, the last thing you'll describe heaven as is boring. And it will be full of great joy and eternal pleasures forever. That spring of living water that will continue to give life. John 4.14, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still not quite getting it. She thought that this water would spare her the trip back and forth in the heat of the day to, uh, to draw water. However, she did make a request, didn't she? Sir, give me this water. And here's where Jesus shifts gears on her a little bit. She may have not understood exactly what he was asking or what he was saying about living water. But what's clear here is before she could receive this living water, Jesus had to deal with her sin. She had to deal, he had to deal with the sin in her life and bring her to a point of repentance and confession. So she, notice, notice here though that her sin did not keep Jesus from offering the water, but now that she seems to desire it, her sin had to be dealt with, and that's what Jesus is going to do here in verse 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Well, she probably took a big gasp and gulp and like, whoa. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. Jesus is putting his finger right on her sin problem. She had five husbands before. She's living with a man now. Now, last week I mentioned that it was good that Jesus was seen to be tired. You know, that's why he's by the well. He's tired. He's thirsty. And it was good to see Jesus tired and thirsty because it shows us that Jesus is human, right? That he had a human body in order to be a suitable sacrifice for humanity. But here in this passage, just a few verses down, Jesus is showing his deity. He never met this woman. You know, he didn't. He, he would have no reason to know anything of her background. And he puts his finger right on the point of her sin, and not only that, he knows the details of her sin. She, he knew how many husbands she had. And he knew that she was presently living with a man. So this is showing us that Jesus is not just human. He's tired and thirsty, but he's God. He knows all things. He knows what's in man. He knows what we do. And so um, that's an important section because in John 1, it tells us that the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we should see parts here where Jesus is human and parts where Jesus is also 
divine. I also mentioned last week that in Scripture, anytime a man meets a woman at a well, a wedding is going to take place. And this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. We saw how the patriarchs, they met their wives at a well. So anyone reading this story, they would immediately think there's a wedding going to take place, particularly after John the Baptist already called Jesus the bridegroom a few verses up. And so um, what, we're, what we're seeing here is that, that this woman is symbolic of the church. And, and why would we say that? Well, Jesus doesn't marry her, but there is a wedding going to take place. He is the bridegroom. But she is symbolic of the church. Why? Because she is sinful. She is undesirable. She is an outcast. And there are many things like that. She's, she's outside of what the Jews would, would consider savable. And yet the Lord seeks her and saves her. That's your story and that's my story. That was, that's us. We are the woman at the well. Sinful, undesirable, um, an outcast, and the Lord sought us and saved us. Now, notice this woman had six men. Six is the number of a man. It's imperfection, right? Now, who's going to be the seventh? Jesus, the number of perfection in all of his fullness and completion. He will be her seventh husband like the church right the bride of christ now notice again that jesus knew everything about her knew her sin and again this should be a reminder to us that nothing that we do even if we think no one is looking goes unnoticed by god god knows everything about us. in fact the the scripture even tells us that God knows our very thoughts. We don't even have to say, thing out, say things out loud. God knows our thoughts. A.W. Pink says, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, in hell. He knoweth what is in the darkness, Daniel 2.22. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. His knowledge is perfect. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him whom we, do, whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. That means God knows our every sin. That should be frightening. How many times do you sin? I mean, you can't count that high. How many times do you sin in a day? And yet some people think, well, if I'm just good enough, God will allow me into heaven. But just think of this. We probably sin hundreds, hundreds of times a day. But if we just sin, sin three times a day, three times a year, times 80 years, how many sins will you have to give an account for? And God knows every single one of them. You can never be good enough to go to heaven on your own god knows them all um and in order for us to be saved like the woman at the well jesus has to confront us with our sin the reason we need to have a savior is because we are sinful and we are lost 
if you think you're good enough to go to heaven, you won't need a Savior. You don't think you need a Savior. And so it's important that the Lord confront us with our own sin. And it's a reminder that repentance is necessary, and it's a necessary part of saving faith, repentance and faith. If you read the Gospels, you hear John the Baptist calling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or Jesus preaching the gospel when he first started. Repent and believe the gospel. So repentance and faith go together. And so this is what Jesus is doing with this. Bringing her to the point of repentance. Confronting her with her sin. Um, and really, the reason that you do this, and oftentimes in order to get people to understand they are sinners, I don't know if you've seen... Um, uh, I can't recall his name right now, but the, the, that uh, Kirk Cameron and the other guy that uh, on YouTube, and they go out in front of crowds, and he asks him a question like, "Have you ever lied?" Well, yeah. Well, you're a liar. Have you have you ever uh, lusted after someone? Yes. Then you're an adulterer. Have you ever do you have you ever hated anyone? Yes. Well, you're a murderer. You see. So according to the Bible, you're a lying, adulterous murderer. So how can you be good enough to go to heaven? See, that's, that's the bad news. And what is he doing? He's using the Ten Commandments, right? He's using the Ten Commandments to knock their feet out from under them, to show them that they're not good enough to go to heaven. They need the gospel. The Ten Commandments, that is the bad news. And people have to understand the bad news, that they're sinners, lost, and are worthy of hell, they need to understand that position. They need to understand the bad news before they can understand the good news that Christ came to save lost sinners. See, if you think you're good enough, you won't know you need a Savior. If you don't understand the bad news, you won't understand the good news either. So Jesus confronts this woman with her sin. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, A gospel which merely says, Come to Jesus and offers him as a friend and offers a marvelous new life without convicting of sin is not new testament evangelism the essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law and it is because the law has not been preached that we have so have had so much superficial evangelism that's why there are so many people running around thinking they're saved but they're not they've never been confronted with their own sin this means that we must explain that mankind is confronted by the holiness of God, by his demands, and also by the consequences of sin. Now, this is really frightening, especially when we live in a day in which pastors in certain churches refuse to preach about sin and judgment. You won't hear it from their pulpits. The wisdom of the day is if you, if you want to grow a church, to grow a big church, maybe in a big stadium, you have to be positive and talk about things that people want to hear, like how to be successful in life or how to have a good marriage. But the last thing that you, you'll hear from these pulpits, even if they, they may not even have a pulpit at all, is that man, the last thing you'll hear is that mankind is dead in their sins and God is coming in judgment. You're not going to hear that. If they begin to preach that, their auditoriums would empty. People come to hear, oftentimes, things that they want to hear for themselves. They want to be talked about. They want to be built up. That's why many of these so-called preachers are considered not preachers, but life coach, life coaches, or 
uh, or um, you know those who uh, have are, are a positive uh, speakers, motivational speakers. Um, but here, unlike a lot of churches today, Jesus is confronting this woman with her sin. Now he's not being mean to her. He's bringing her to the point of repentance and faith. And that's the most gracious and loving thing that he could do. Now in verses 19 through 20, we see the proper place to worship, or at least we need to look at some of these things, particularly of the question that she asked in verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, that's probably a good conclusion if Jesus just told you all of your sins. Uh, But then she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, she realizes that Jesus is no ordinary person and that he must be some kind of a prophet. But then she starts talking about worship or the proper place of worship she was talking about mount gerizim where they were at the foot of it when they at the well there and so he she is starting to talk about where the samaritans would worship uh, and in difference to where the jews would worship mount gerizim or gerizim or mount zion and um, some of the commentators think that she's just changing the subject it's like oh look squirrel you know let's get off the Let's get off my sins and let's start talking about something else. But I really think that what she's doing is she's becoming convicted of her sin and she's starting to think about spiritual things and she's starting to think about what do I do to get rid of my sin? I need to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, but which temple do I go to? You see, the, she's being convicted But now, which one is right, Jesus? Where do I go? J.C. Ryle wrote, She was alarmed by having her sins suddenly exposed. She found herself for the first time in the presence of a prophet. She felt for the first time the necessity of religion. But at once the old question between the Jews and the Samaritans arose before her mind. How was she to know what was the truth? What was she to believe? So, Here was the question, which is the true religion? The ones that the Samaritans put forth or the ones that the Jews? Which one was true, which one is false? So Jesus answers her question in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Well, that's good to know, and If you really consider what Jesus is saying, he's anticipating the church, is he not? At the time, the proper place of worship was in Jerusalem, in the temple, where God's presence is. But, as we read the New Testament, we understand that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, at the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came and took residence in the church, that the church is the new temple. So what Jesus is anticipating is the church, where the church, wherever the church is, there the temple is. It's not going to be on Mount Zion in some location in Jerusalem or anywhere else. God is where his people are. 
So God is here with us even today among us, just like he was in Jerusalem in the temple in the Old Testament. He is here. And even better than Jerusalem in the Old Testament, the, at least he was in that location and only one person every year could go and get it come into the presence of God. But now every single one of us individually become the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, and we collectively together become God's temple. So Jesus here is anticipating. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why? Because the Father will be worshiped all around the world in and through the church. And so, Jesus is affirming that soon the worship will not be uh, on either mountain, Gerizim or Zion. However, then he answers her question, verse 22. Notice what he says. You worship what you do not know. That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The answer to her question is, the Jews are right, not the Samaritans. But there's something more here. Jesus is not being ethnocentric. Um, he was stating a fact. He was stating a fact concerning God's eternal plan. And what was that plan? His plan was to bring salvation to the world through the Jews. That was his plan. That's why he started with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? And he promised through a bloodline, through David. And it was through the Jews that the Messiah would be born. Salvation is from the Jews, he says. How, why is that? Because Jesus was Jewish. And the whole purpose of God was to use the Jewish race to bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so he affirms it's through the Jews. The Samaritans are wrong, and salvation is from the Jews, right? Now, um, the other thing he, he tells her, again, at first, you worship what you do not know. Why? Well, we mentioned, I think, last week that the Samaritans left out the prophets and the Psalms and the histories and the wisdom literature. They left out most of the Old Testament, and they just held to the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And even their version of Scripture changed the place of worship from Mount Zion to Gerizim. They, they changed it. And so they didn't have God's full revelation. So when they worshiped, they didn't worship, they didn't have the full revelation of God. They worshiped out of their ignorance. And Jesus is saying the Jews have the full revelation of God, the prophets, the law, the Proverbs, the, we have it all. And the Jews worship what they know, not because they're smarter than you, because God has revealed himself in all of those books that you refuse to accept. So we worship what we know. And again, salvation is of the Jews because the Jews brought forth the Messiah. And there he was, Jesus, right there. Now look at verse 23 and 24. He says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's something very, very, very important here that we need 
that we need to understand. So Jesus is saying that the Father is seeking people to worship him. That's very interesting, isn't it? The Father is seeking people to worship that, the, the people who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Now, since the late 80s or early 90s, the church growth gurus begin to push for evangelical churches to become, and you've heard this term, seeker sensitive. That was taught in the cemeteries or the seminaries. <laughs> um, I remember in a church growth class that I had in seminary, we were being taught some of these principles of seeker-sensitive service. And for a time there, early on in my ministry, I had bought into a lot of this because this was just what everybody did. And I was, I'm grateful to the Lord that he showed me the truth of this, and I turned away from that and repented of that. But in those days, you were taught that if you wanted to start a church, the first thing that you would do is not look to Scripture, or they didn't really say that out loud, but that's the first thing you would do if you want to start a church is survey your whole community and ask the community what they would look for in a church. In, in essence, you were, you were asking lost people how they would like to worship God. And when the pastors began to preach in these churches, they would put these churches together according to what the survey said, right? And they begin to preach in these, in these churches. They downplayed the biblical sermon because that's not what people in the community want. They didn't want, want biblical sermons. They wanted motivational speeches. They wanted to be encouraged. They wanted all of this, you know, steps to that successful me, you know, that kind of thing. And the sermon began to be downplayed and the pastor did not start his study every week with the Bible. He started with asking uh, about what the felt needs were of the people. And this is stuff that I was taught. And again, the pastors became life coaches, motivational speakers, but not faithful expositors of the Word of God. Drama and dance were introduced into the services. You know, you give them a little 10, 15-minute sermon, and then you can dance and do dramas and all kinds of things. And the music of the church was changed for rock and roll concerts, including light shows, laser lights, and smoke. But here's the problem. The churches grew very large with this method. The churches grew large, massive uh, stadiums, big, massive mega churches grew on these principles. So if your standard of truth is pragmatism, whatever works is true, then the seeker-sensitive movement was a great success. But as I heard one podcaster say recently however there may have been a lot of people coming but God still judges when we are unfaithful to him and the end result is that the generation of the seeker sensitive movement have lost most of their kids why because the world came into the church well then why do I need to go to church I can just stay out in the world and get all that and better. 
better drama, better music, better stuff, right? And the church lost so far a generation or two because of this pragmatism and this seeker-sensitive mentality. Now, in the midst of all this madness, few people, I think the Lord had to bring it to my attention, but few people stopped to think for a moment that this seeker-sensitive business was wrong-headed to begin with. Why? Because when you read in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, Paul makes it clear, quoting the Old Testament prophet, no one seeks after God, not one. No one seeking after God. You say, well, I know people who are kind of seeking. No, they're not seeking after the God of the Bible. They're seeking after a God of their own making. They're seeking after their own idols. They're not seeking after the one true God. And in, in an interesting twist, when you read Scripture, you find that the Scripture says that it's not us that are seeking God. It is God who is seeking us. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek. We're not the seekers. He is. He came to seek and save the lost. And here in this verse, what do we see? The Father is seeking. The Father is seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. So what does spirit and truth mean? Well, in one sense, Jesus is the embodiment of spirit and truth. Jesus is spirit and truth. So we could say that, that the Father is seeking those who would worship him through Christ. That's true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He is the, the embodiment of spirit and truth. So we come to the Father through the Son. When we pray to God, we pray to the Father in the name of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We do it through the Son. When we worship, we worship the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, through the Son who is the mediator and the great high priest. We worship God through the Son. So by coming to Jesus and placing your faith in Jesus, you will worship God in spirit and in truth. But there's also another sense of worshiping God in spirit and truth that I think we need to, to, to look at. To worship God in spirit does not mean that we do a song and sing the verses a hundred times until everybody gets worked up into a spiritual or emotional frenzy. A lot of people, they judge a worship service, well, I really felt the Spirit of God. It really was about how exciting the music was. And that's not what worshiping God in spirit means. Worshiping in spirit means that our spirit that was once dead to God has now been made alive. Lost people cannot worship God. And that's why we must be born again. We, we must be made alive. Spiritually, we must be made alive. And so in order to worship God, our spirit must be alive. So... Um, when we are made spiritually alive, then we desire to worship. Lost people don't desire to go to church. They don't desire to worship God. They think this is a complete waste of time. They'd rather be out fishing, mowing their lawn, or watching NASCAR. But those who are made alive desire to worship 
God. They desire to give God thanks and praise because once we were dead and now we're alive and so we want to bring thanks to God uh, again pink writes worship is a redeemed heart occupied with God expressing itself in adoration and thanksgiving so worshiping in spirit means that uh, that we have been made spiritually alive and we express ourselves to the Lord in thanksgiving and praise for his great salvation for giving us salvation right and the, that kind of worship can only be done by those who are born again, made alive spiritually. But what about truth? This means that we need to worship God in the right way. And this is, this is really important. The Ten Commandments. The first commandment is that we do not worship any other gods. That's what the first commandment is. The second commandment is that we do not worship the one true God in the wrong way, like making idols or things to bow down to if you remember Israel in the wilderness they made the golden calf on the side of the golden calf they wrote Yahweh they were they were worshiping trying to worship the true God through an idol you see and that was breaking of the second commandment and so it does matter how we worship God that's again the lesson that the seeker sensitive movement did not know or learn rather than going to god in his scripture about how they should organize the worship service and worship god they went to lost people and asked them what they wanted that's a recipe for disaster this is what john calvin says this then is the rule as to the right worship of god that men are only to give ear to god and to follow what he commands but when men's presupposition intrudes so that they devise a new mode of worship they then depart from the true God and worship mere idols. In religion, nothing is to be attempted by us, but we are to follow this one law in worshiping God, simply to obey his word. That means that you don't go asking other people how they want to worship God. You go to God and ask how he wants to be worshiped. That's the important thing. And that's modern evangelicalism. They are not doing that. They think that they can draw crowds by asking them how they want to worship and they feel good about doing that. But in the end, they're just doing stuff. They're not worshiping God because they're not worshiping the way God desires to be worshiped according to his word. The Reformed theology calls this the regulative principle. Now, Certainly, the regulative principle can be misused or misapplied, but it simply means that everything we do in worship should have scriptural basis or scriptural precedence for it. When it comes to worship, again, we should not ask, how do I want to worship God? The question is, how does God want to be worshipped? You see the difference? One is self-centered. How do I want to worship God? And a lot of people will ask that question and then go seeking out a church that fits their desire of how they want to worship. But the real question that we should all ask is, how does God want to be worshipped? What, what does the scripture say? And then, once we know how we should worship God, then it's safe to go find a church that worships God in the way that God wants to be worshipped. Right? So, we have said this before, but the liturgy that we follow, even today, the liturgy 
is not only something that the ancient church did, we are connected by the church throughout the last 2,000 years in the way that we are worshiping the Lord even today, but the, but the format of our liturgy follows the temple worship of ancient Israel. I don't know if you knew that. What we go through every week in the liturgy, even in the back and forth and all that, that has very ancient roots to it. The confession of sin, is that biblical? Confess your sins one to another, right? All of this is biblical worship, and there is scriptural precedence for it. So we are to worship the Father with our spirit through Christ, and we are to worship the Father in light of the truth of God's word informed by the scripture that's the kind of worshipers the father is seeking he's not seeking those who are worshiped the way they want to worship in some craziness the father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and according to his truth in his word one final thing verse 25 and 26 the woman said to him I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. This is so important. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That would be mind-blowing, wouldn't it? She, she knew enough. This is a prophet, but something more is going on here. I know there's a Messiah coming, and Jesus said, I'm he. I'm the one, and I will tell you all things. He will tell us all things. He's, he's there to tell her. Now, notice that ending phrase, I who speak to you am he. Most of your translations have the, have the he on there. Um, but that's not in the original Greek. What Jesus says, I who speak to you, he says, uh, um, basically, I am. The one who speaks to you, I am. Now, that should connect us to something very, very important of the Old Testament, right? What Jesus said to her was ego ami. Flip back in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to the time when Moses asked God, whom shall I say sent me? You know, I'm gonna, you, you're sending me to Pharaoh and to set my people free, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? And God said, I am. In the Greek Septuagint Old Testament, God said, ego ami. And that's the word we get Yahweh from, Yahweh. So when Jesus said to her, the one who is speaking to you, I am, he's not just saying, I am he, he is saying, I am. I am Yahweh, the Messiah, God in the flesh. So we're going to see from this point on several more places where Jesus is going to use that term, ego ami. There are people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. He did right here, and he's going to do it again and again and again. He's going to say, ego ami, I am the bread of life. I am the true shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. 
Yahweh. He was using the name of God. And so she was not speaking to any ordinary person. She was speaking face-to-face with God. That's why we can trust his words. And the reason why we have this story about the woman of the well, because it's our story too. And Jesus is now here with us saying, Come unto me and I will give you living water. And my Father is coming to, to seek those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And the only way to worship the Father in spirit and truth is through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. How do you drink this water? You believe in him. So if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like this woman, I believe she's saved that day. And the evidence is that she goes and gets a whole crowd of people and brings them back, right? If you have never trusted Christ, I would encourage you to do that. The other thing I would say to those of us that are Christians, this message needs to go out to the world. So, So tell others about Christ. Tell them the bad news about their sin. They're sinners. The good news is Christ came to save them. And let's be ready to tell everyone about that good news through Christ. (laughs) 